Well, let's stand together, and we're going to be looking at James in chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Lord, we ask now for you to have your way with us through the ministry of your word, that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to penetrate and work in our heart, Lord, as he sees fit. And Lord, may you allow me as your messenger, Lord, simply to be your mouthpiece. And Lord, that we, your people, would be ready to listen, hungry to learn and to grow and to change according to your will. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In New Mexico, there is a particular area known by the pilots as the Mushroom Patch. The actual official name for the area is the VLA, which means the Very Large Array, and it's basically 27 enormous satellites that are all located in, in the same kind of area that are there to listen, They're to, to hear radio signals. And they're, they're waiting to listen, to hear of, of any sound or noise or message that might be coming from the universe. It's an incredibly sensitive place in the sense if you took all of the reception and all the energy of what they have heard, it would be like a snowflake landing on the ground. That's how delicate it is to hear these radio waves. And man will go to incredible lengths to hear from the darkness of the universe. And yet, God has spoken (laughs) through his son, powerfully, majestically, and through his word. And unfortunately, many times, man doesn't want to hear him. Now, friends, what we find in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, is this. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. I'm talking here about the word of God to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We have it. It is a, other translations say, a more sure word of prophecy. And not only does God want to speak, but God also himself has a 
V-L-E, a very large ear. And his very large ear hears even the weakest prayers of his fumbling servants as they struggle and suffer through life. God hears. My friends, that's so important. If there is one topic in Scripture that causes us to cringe and squirm in our seats, it's the topic of prayer. There's a few others out there. Money might be another one, but certainly prayer. And what is the reason for that? Because probably everyone sitting in this room feels like they fall short in their prayer life. Like they're just not doing enough, or they could be doing more, or they want to be that prayer warrior. But oh, they know that they, they, they stop and they pause and they pray and they look at their clock and it's only been 15 minutes and everything they thought of has been prayed about. And they've heard all these stories about people that would get up early in the morning and for hours they'd be on their knees and they would, they'd be praying and praying and praying and, and shaking the world for God and their knees are callous but yours are covered with Lovely, soft cream. and We're just a different people. And I think some of that idea has intimidated us. that We could never, ever be that. And so we cringe because we know we could do better. And we wonder if we are failing in this discipline of prayer. Friends, can you relate to that? So I think prayer is a discipline that intimidates us, and and we just feel like we've lost the plot. And what we offer to God when we pray is more like a a hodgepodge of a dog's breakfast than a, a juicy steak and potato feast. It's just throwing whatever we can think out there. But here near the end of his letter to the churches, James draws our attention to the great privilege and ministry of prayer. And the text, although it seems a little confusing at times, is all about prayer. And it's structured into four parts. Personal prayer, verse 13. Elder prayer, verses 14 through 15. Church prayer, the first part of 16. And then the example of Elijah's prayer. And through this text, James is calling us to fervent prayer at all times, in all circumstances. Now, friends, I didn't orchestrate this, but I do think that a topic to help us, might want to say, bring in the new year, is the topic of prayer. Because God's people should be a praying people. And we should be working at our prayer together as a body, as a people, and then personally in our walk with God. And so allow this to be an opportunity for you, know, for you to be helped. And wherever you are in your, in your discipline of prayer, allow this text to strengthen you, to move you to pursue prayer in a way that would honor God in a greater way. So let's first of all look at 
the prayer of individuals. And what we have here really is a general principle. But, you know, where do you go to when you are suffering physically? Something's happened quickly. You, you pick up the phone, you call 911, and the ambulance comes. You know when there's an emergency, you know where to turn, and you know that the ambulance is going to get there, and you're hoping that, that the people there are going to help you, and you get to the hospital. It's second nature for us to seek emergency medical treatment for physical symptoms. Yet, it's not unusual for us to completely ignore the path of prayer that God offers for us for our spiritual struggles. Let's look at verses 13, or verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him what? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Let's first of all look at this first part. When times are difficult, we're called to pray. Now, friends, I want to first of all talk about the privilege of prayer. God invites us to seek his help in our moments of trouble. That's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, God is saying, when you are going through difficulty, turn to me. Talk to me. Cry out to me. It's not like, nah, I don't, just stop bothering me. Other people might respond that way. God doesn't respond that way. He says, yes, talk to me. I want to talk to you. Talk to me about what you're going through. And just take a moment to think about what prayer actually is. It's recognizing that God is sovereign, that God is present, that God is powerful, that God is love and mercy and grace. When you pray, you're not just petitioning God for help. You're engaged in warfare for your soul. Now, friends, this is important because we need to see this text in light of the rest of James. James has been about your soul, your heart, your desires. Now, James has already said that, hasn't he? That it is your desires that war in your heart that are tempting you to turn away from God's wisdom and turn to worldly wisdom instead. And so we go to God in prayer. Worldly wisdom speaks to us in our despair, whispering doubts into our hearts. It says, maybe God isn't really sovereign enough. Or maybe God isn't really near you as you suffer. Or maybe God isn't so powerful to help you overcome this struggle. Or maybe God doesn't really care about you at all. But friends, we've all faced those questions, haven't we? We've all wondered if God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. I like what Paul Tripp says about prayer. He says, I am persuaded of this, that perhaps there is no more radical act in the Christian faith than prayer. To take your life, to take your struggle, to take your most precious things, to take your most difficult things and to place them in the hands of someone you can't see, and you can't hear, and you can't touch, you can't feel. It's an act so radical, it can hardly be described. And I think he's right. It's a radical thing, but it's also a Christian right that he has given us because of Christ. One of the great blessings we have as followers of Christ is to come boldly to the throne of grace and bring our petitions before him. So prayer is an expression of 
what we actually believe about God and about what God has promised. Do you believe that God is sovereign, that he's present, that he's powerful, that he's loving, that he's merciful, that he's gracious? If so, you will come running to him when you're gripped by a trial or some kind of suffering. The question is, do you believe that God is who he says he is? The question is, do you believe that God will do what he says he will do? So this is the privilege of prayer that has been given to all believers. And be thankful for that. Be in awe of that. Don't neglect it. Secondly, there's the problem of suffering that comes out here. What kind of suffering is James referring to in verse 13? Is it physical pain, illness, or loss? Is it emotional pain, mental distress, or anxiety? Is it spiritual suffering? And I don't know about you, but as we've been working through the book of James, I have kind of felt like I've been in a boxing match. And James has been kind of maneuvering in this boxing match, and he knows exactly how to give sucker punches. And every one of these texts, it's like, boom, Rod, here you go. You need to see this. This is you. I know you're preaching this for your congregation, but this is for you. And it's for everyone who's there. And each time, it's just like, he's just hitting us. He's hitting us. This has been hard work. He exposes my guard and comes with with violent punches to make his point. Let's just review some of this book. He's saying, I need to grow up. I need to be steadfast while facing trials. I need to to fight against being double-minded, having my feet in both worlds. I need to stop blaming God for my sin. I need to start seeing God as the dispenser of good gifts for my benefit and for his glory. I need to stop hearing only and start doing. I need to stop being partial in my attitude toward people. I need to stop saying that I have faith and start showing that my faith is real by my works. I need to control my tongue. I need to stop embracing worldly wisdom and receive the implanted word of God's wisdom, the wisdom from above. I need to see my worldliness for what it is and weep and mourn over my sin. I need to stop speaking evil against my brothers and especially the law. I need to stop boasting about what I'm going to do tomorrow. I need to stop longing to be like the rich who will face God in judgment I need to stop being impatient and place myself under God's sovereign care. And friends, all of these arenas are arenas where we need God's help. We're desperate for his help. And we need to come running to him in prayer. So that there's great logic in what James is doing here. As he, as he starts now to, to, to land the plane, so to speak, and finish out his letter. Friends, the kind of of suffering that James is talking about is not just physical, but it's also spiritual. Early in the chapter, if you remember, he, he, he takes up the case of people who are being oppressed, taking advantage of, or being treated unfairly. He talks about the Old Testament prophets who suffered because they were speaking God's truth. He uses the example of Job as one who was patient, but he suffered physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So taken together, these examples give us the picture of someone who is spiritually exhausted, completely overwhelmed, weak, weary, carrying an an unbearable load, 
The question is, are you suffering in any of these ways? And I know some of you are. If you are, what does the Bible call you to do about it? I love what John Bunyan said. He says, you can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. You can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Prayer is the emergency 911 call you need to make when trouble comes. The other option, friend, is taking your suffering in your own hands, turning it over and over again, growing more anxious with every determination to do something, and ultimately standing alone in the fight. Why do that when you can pray? So, when times are difficult, pray. Then, when times are good, pray. We may not see it this way, but praise is just another form of prayer. I mean, that's what happened this morning. When we're singing these songs, we're not just, I mean, hopefully we're not just saying, oh, I love the melody here. It's so good to sing this melody. The point of our singing in the morning and afterwards is, is not just to, you know, make our voices sound good, and they did, but they are to channel us in such a way that we are praising God, we're saying things to God by virtue of our praise, and that is prayer. We're living, friends, in a sin-cursed world, in a world that is full of suffering, injustice, prejudice, warfare, tongue-lashing, impatience, arrogance, insecurity. And because of the fall, it is a world where nothing operates perfectly in the way it was intended. And it's a world where every human being is flawed because of sin and is in some way causing damage to others because of that sinfulness. In fact, it's a world where that is is groaning. It's waiting for redemption. Friends, in the midst of all that trouble, all that suffering, all that heartache and discouragement, there are times of joy. And so when we gather together, we sing praises because we're joyful that even in the midst of a sin-cursed world, we are still blessed and guided and helped and sustained by God. So we praise, and we have much to praise him for. So friends, when you and I have a reason to be cheerful, it is only because of the grace of God It is God who gives us his creation as an opportunity to step away from the toil of life. For me, that's just a, if I will use the word, therapeutic thing. It's just, sometimes it's just great to get out of the thing you're in and just go out and look at some waves coming in. And you're reminded, even in this sin-cursed world, there is beauty. And God is in control of all. It is God who provides light in the darkness. It's God who protects us from all the dangers in the broken world. It is God who intervenes to stop us hurting ourselves. It is God who orchestrates the events and the hearts of others that produce the blessing we receive. Truly, it is God who is the reason for our joy in this broken world. And friends, that's why we sing praises to God. Why? Because we know 
that our blessings, our joy, our comfort, our fight uh, is, is securely in the sovereign hand of God, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every day God's hand of restraint, protection, and care is upon us. We may not always see it, but it is there, shepherding us to the end. As Paul says in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, as we move on, that's the general principle. In good times, praise. Bad times, pray. This is how we live our lives. This is how we pursue Christ in a general way on a personal level. But then he brings in an example. And here we see the prayer of elders being fleshed out among the people of God. Again, let's read verses 14 through 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, one of the ways, friends, that we have drifted in our churches is to embrace the individualistic spirit of our age, which results in the privatized Jesus and me religion. It's the kind of worldview where we prize privacy, we we prize individualism, and as a result, we lose out on the God-given resources at our disposal when we're facing times of struggle. If you're a Christian, you're called to be part of a church. It's part of your calling. That's what God commands you to do. You are a part of a church universal, yes, we know that, but you link yourself up with a church local. And a privatized Jesus and me religion values the freedom to bounce around from church to church, which is not a biblical paradigm. And if you're a Christian, not only are you to be a part of a local church, you are to identify yourself fully with the local church, and we call that church membership. So that's when people say, I want to settle in now with this group of believers under this kind of leadership and partner with them in ministry for the glory of God. And that means then, as you do that, that you recognize that you have a responsibility to that local church, but that local church then also has a responsibility to care for your soul. And one of the blessings that comes with that is the ministry of elders to the flock that God has put under their care. But see, this kind of individualistic Christianity, which is was rampant here in California in particular, Um, does not benefit from that kind of ministry. And friends, I want to encourage you, if if you have not taken the step of membership, keep plugging away and go through the process. If Gateway is where God has you, let's, let's shore that up so that this reality can be solidified and the partnership can be realized in a more formal way. Now, friends, the position of elder is not simply a position of leadership. I know in many churches, that's all it is. It's a position, however, of responsibility for care and oversight of the flock. It is fueled by the love for the body and is consumed with the desire to shepherd 
that body faithfully before God. So elders stand before God with the responsibility of caring for the flock. And they do that with joy. So it involves prayer, counseling, teaching, comforting, and caring. Here at Gateway, we, right now, we have three elders, and we seek to take our eldering seriously. Now, recognize we're imperfect men, but called by God because we've been recognized by the church, ordained by God, and taken this mantle of responsibility to care for and shepherd the flock of God. And so here, James brings up a question, doesn't he? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now, friends, there's a, there's a little bit of a controversy and some theological interpretations that we're going to have to deal with in these next couple of verses. And I'm going to be very, very frank about what I believe Scripture is saying based on the context, and um, hopefully you'll be able to go home and search this out for yourself. But friends, this is a beautiful picture of the leadership of the church taking care of one of its sheep. Let's just kind of jump in. What is meant by this word sick? The sick brother or sister here we're talking about. Well, the word literally means to be without strength or to be worn out. And so it can be understood in a couple of different ways. First, that what Paul has in mind here is the kind of suffering that takes place when people are abused, the recipients of injustice and persecution, which is what he has just been talking about. Second, that Paul is emphasizing some kind of extreme sickness. So based on the context, the first, this, this uh, abuse-oriented understanding seems to be the best interpretation. But it's possible that Paul has in mind someone who is suffering in an extreme kind of ailment that is the result of such persecutions. So this is not talking about someone who, I got the sniffles, I'm going to call the elders. Or I have the flu, I'm going to call the elders. Or uh, food poisoning or something like that. Now certainly there might be a, just a general body sense of, hey, would you pray for me? That's perfectly fine. But there's something formal, there's something deliberate about what James is talking about here. The picture here conveys some form of serious sickness or suffering that has resulted in that person to be without strength, literally to be worn out, to be, uh, to, to be weary with exhaustion that often accompanies illness. And so this would mean that the elders are called to pray for someone who is either struggling because of persecution, that's the context, or because they're weary in their physical sickness. And it certainly would encompass the emotional and spiritual issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, hopelessness, and fear. Now, not only we need to emphasize the word sick, but then it says, or we need to note, note here, though, that it's this whole thing is initiated by the individual. Can I just say this? Elders are not omniscient. We don't just wake up in the morning and say, hey, Chris, he's sick. I'm going to go visit him. Now, it would be nice in one sense, but we're not. The point here, then, is that there has to be some initiative on the part of the individual to say, hey, can you have the elders come? You get the picture there, right? All right? Let's move on. It's all, he also told here that they're prayed over by the elders. So there's, there's a picture here, and we can take it to whatever degree, but it seems like the individual um, here is, is in, incapacitated, that they may be laying down, or there's this picture of their, the elders are over them. They're, they're, they have their, their, their hands on them physically, and there's some of that going on here because we move to the anointing with oil. 
And this is where even good people disagree on, on this interpretation here. What does the oil mean? When James speaks of being anointed with oil, he is not talking about something magical. Okay? And, and you know, typically what is used in, in that context is like, you know, like some olive oil just kind of dabbed on the forehead or something like that in, in the ceremony, if that's the, the, the way you, you, you interpret it. There's nothing magical about the oil. Let me just pause and step back here and say, there's nothing magical about going through the waters of baptism. It's not as if the, the water somehow, oh, I got the water and all these things are happening. No, it's a matter of obedience. The ceremony is a matter of obedience before God and before the people of God, as well as other people that may be there. So there's generally two interpretations here. That number one, that the oil is medicinal, Different ointments are used to bring comfort to the sick and suffering. Or that the oil is symbolic. In other words, it's a reminder that the elders are acting for God, representing Christ to the flock. Now, both certainly have their merit. And as Alec Motier says, the sick and the elders would have both the spiritual and the medicinal in mind as they went through this process. I can just say this as a pastor. I have visited with people um, who are going through great pain and suffering, and one of the questions I ask is, have you been to the doctor? Oh, no, Pastor, I'm going to... All right, here's your homework assignment, all right? You know, it's, it, I mean, it's the basic thing. And back in Paul's day, one of the things they would do is use oils to help soothe the person's body, okay? So there, there can be the aspect here of making sure that the physical is being attended to as well as the spiritual, there may also be some symbolic representation. So I think, I think both kind of have their merit. My, my inclination is this is talking more about the, the, the physical, medicinal side of things. All right? Now, the, the elders then are called to pray for the sick brother or sister. Notice, though, that there is this thing called the prayer of faith. As we look at verse 15, we must again be careful to not fill the text with our own ideas or the ideas of a particular kind of tradition. Look at verse 15 again. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So this verse, friends, has had some unfortunate misinterpretations. And the first one I want to make sure that we identify here is this. Unfortunately, this text has been used by the Catholic Church as the basis for their last rites. Now, what are last rites? It's the idea for the Catholic priest to come and, and find that individual and lead them through prayer, communion if possible, hopefully restating the creed, in order to remove any lingering sins a person may have so that they will have a better chance of getting into heaven. But friends, that is a tradition that has been imposed on the text. That is not what the text is saying. And not only that, it betrays the basic understanding of what is called progressive sanctification or understanding of what actually happens in the gospel. When we receive the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, we are saved. We are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. There is no more prayer that is necessary for our eternal salvation because our sins, past, present, and future, are all paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. It was a complete 
satisfactory atonement. To add to the bondage of having last rights or the panic of not having last rights is an injustice to anyone who has truly been radically called into the family of God. We're not saved by our works, but by the blood of Christ. Hear this. When God is looking down at you as a believer, he's not looking at you, and he's not looking at your sin. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ covers that. The blood of Jesus Christ has paid for that. We come before God on the merit of Christ and his righteousness. So this is where the Roman Catholic Church is confused in its theology and where the church's tradition inserts interpretation into a text which is not saying or teaching their traditional or doctrine. And this is what happens when you come to a passage and you take it in isolation. You don't look at the context. You don't see what's going on. So friends, it's not a reference to last rites as there is no need for last rites. True believers have been saved fully and completely and will enter heaven immediately upon their death. There's no purgatory. There's no holding tank where you need to work off your sin. And see, as I was kind of studying through this and I was reading this for you, part of the purpose here, and I got this off the you know, Catholic page here, This is done in order to remove any lingering sins a person may have so that they will have a better chance of getting into heaven. Say, what? Friends, there's a problem there. So this is not talking about last rites. Secondly, this is not what the charismatic and Pentecostals believe, claim that everyone can be healed if they pray with enough faith. Of course, one of the questions there is, how much is enough? I mean, how many times do you have to say, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe? Oh, you you did it four times. You should have done it five times. I'm not going to give it to you. You didn't do it enough. My friends, that's just nonsense. As if faith was a commodity. And if you pray and you're not healed, that's evidence that you have a lack of faith. That's what they would teach. Now, some of you I know have been a part of the context of that kind of thinking. That was my heritage growing up. So I I know this personally. And I know know friends who have had physical, um, born with, with physical deformities who were grabbed by Pentecostals and said, if you only have enough faith, God can change this. And it was devastating for that person. Friends, the misuse of this text results in a double misery for the person who is suffering or chronically ill. They suffer with their original problem, and then they they are forced to suffer the stigma of insufficient faith. See, this side of the room, you guys have insufficient faith. This side of the room, you have faith, right? You see what's happening in the church when we do that. Again, it's a distortion of what Scripture teaches. Just friends, I just say this. Oh, the bondages that we put on people because we're not being careful to study the Word of God in its context. Right? Now, there's three problems with the charismatic Pentecostal thinking. First, it forgets that God numbers our days. It forgets that God numbers our... Everyone's going to die. And quite frankly, that's okay. Because this world is 
not my home. I'm just a passing through, right? This is a temporary breath. This is a temporary vapor. We're preparing ourselves for eternity at God's appointed time. So now, no amount of faith will change God's plans. I mean, it's not like God is up in heaven and saying, oh, you have some faith. I'll give you a couple more years. No. Scripture is clear, secondly, that men of great faith were not healed of their illnesses. Paul performed miracles but did not heal his associates who had physical struggles. What does he tell Timothy? Take some wine for your stomach. It's not exactly the same thing that you would hear at a healing gathering. Trophimus is left in Miletus. Why? Because he was sick, Paul says. Well, you should have just healed him, Paul. Epaphroditus was ill, near to death. And the Lord never relieved Paul's thorn in the flesh, whatever that may have been. And third, friends, James is not promising universal healing in this life. The word save can mean physical or spiritual deliverance. The Lord will save his children either in this life after the prayer of the elders or they will rise bodily on the the last day when the Lord raises the dead. Now, friends, that's, that's, that's stuff that we know as believers that God is at work. But we get caught up because sometimes we get so consumed with the now. And our wills become the idol that must be worshipped rather than the will of God. So friends, God does not owe us physical healing because we have exercised strong faith as if we can manipulate the will in the heart of God. God grants or denies our requests as he will. His sovereign purposes direct his actions. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. So, the prayer of faith then is simply praying by faith, trusting in the sovereign God. James isn't presenting for us some kind of mechanical vending machine where you put our prayer quarters in and you automatically get a response because you're praying by faith. No. True faith trusts in the sovereignty of God. It rests in a God who is completely in control and orchestrating our lives according to his will. He knows what is best. God wants us to make our request known to him. He wants us to turn to him in times of trouble and difficulty. But he also wants us to release release our grip on what we want and in humility find strength from God to face what he wants. So, Having said all that, the elders come and pray for healing, knowing that God can and does heal if it is his will. But because they care for the individual, they know that healing may not be God's design. That is not a lack of faith, friends. That is good theology applied. So not only do they pray for healing if it's God's will, they also pray for wisdom, for courage, strength, for dependence on God, for endurance, for a growing maturity through the trial. See, that's what James is talking about here. You're going to go through trials, and I want you to mature. And he gives us all these examples and says, how are you doing? James wants us to know that God does hear, that God does answer, 
that our prayer is not some empty exercise or some religious ceremony we go through. He is a God who hears, who cares, who exercises his will. So friends, in summary, sick, wearied, abused, and persecuted men and women call for the elders as a group to exercise care through the ministry of comfort and prayer. They're not calling on people who believe that they have the gift of healing, but for the elders who pray to God who can heal. And then we have the issue of forgiveness. Prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So one of the secrets, friends, about living the Christian life in a fallen world and facing all kinds of trials and suffering, abuse and persecution, is that even when we're standing for the Lord and resting in him, we can find ourselves committing sin in our hearts. Let me give you a few examples. The person who's beaten because he is a believer can endure the shame and the beatings, but in his heart, he can allow his flesh to think sinful thoughts about revenge or the hope that some evil will be meted out on those who have been doing that abuse. It's all happening here. And James is going after our hearts more than he's going after our behavior. The person who is struggling with sickness can lash out at those around them because of the way that they are feeling. The person who is facing that long, painful trial might struggle with impatience or wanting to take matters into their own hands and no longer trusting God. James is simply reinforcing what he's already warned about, and that's the tendency of hearts to wander away from trusting God and toward embracing the many temporary satisfactions that come as a result of embracing the wisdom of the world. That's why the ministry of the elders is so important. It isn't just to soothe the body with oils. It is to give wisdom and counsel to hearts who have been enduring suffering and are fighting to respond in mature ways Elders minister the word of God and are not afraid to ask heart questions to help minister to the souls under their care. And this is, this is, this is for me, this is for Albert, this is for Ed. When, we are, when we're visiting, when we're ministering to people who are going through difficulties, we need to make sure that we're going beyond the surface, that we're asking questions to get to the heart, to help people with their soul care, because you might behave a certain way, but in your heart you are raging against God. You see that? So there is then a need for forgiveness. The privilege of raising up elders and having elders who are willing to take on such responsibilities, friends, is a huge gift to the church. And when churches ignore the Scripture's command to have biblical eldership, they are shortchanging the health of the body. So friends, elders are not experienced businessmen. Elders are not simply the, the, the lead pastor's yes men or buddies. They have a unique God-given shepherding responsibility before God to care for the flock under their care. That's why Peter says the following. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God 
would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's the attitude then that elders should have. So we've seen the prayer of the individual, the prayer of the elders. Now we want to consider the prayer of the body. Because another blessing that we have is not just the blessing of having elders who shepherd and care for the flock, but it's having a caring community. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You see that? This is not talking now about the elders. This is not talking about those who are also believers. So just like the elders are a gift to the church, so the body of Christ is to one another. Brothers and sisters listen to the struggles of each other, and they commit to one another that they will pray. I saw that happening even this morning. It's beautiful. The church should not just be a place where formal ministry is taking place, but where organic ministry is taking place within the community. In other words, we're not waiting for some kind of program to tell us, oh, you need to pray for this person over here. It's happening naturally because God's people are gathering together and they're interacting with one another. It is a joy to my heart to hear how so many here at Gateway are meeting together one-on-one over coffee for breakfast, or maybe some of you um, uh, young moms, you're meeting together at the park. This is all natural, organic relationships that are formed within the body of Christ, and they're places where ministry is taking place. This is right. This is good. This is healthy. But people are not going to open their hearts if ministry is always formal in nature. Relationships need to be formed so that people are going to trust you with the struggles that they face, the rawness that is in their heart. Friends, God never intended all the connectivity or one another's mention in Scripture to take place on Sunday morning by the teaching pastor or the elders of the church. They have their responsibility, but each of you has a responsibility to one another, where confession and prayer are at the center. And this begs the question, doesn't it? Are you looking to invest in the lives of others? You know, people are looking for a church. They want to come to a church, and they expect the church to respond in a certain way to them. And there's certainly an understanding that 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 should be true. But at the same time, what are they saying? I want to give. We should place ourselves in the situations, believers saying, okay, God, I am purposely going to reach out to particular people so that I can invest in their lives spiritually. You know, God, you know, how can I serve in this church? You know, go to the pastor, find out. Maybe he'll tell you. No, you can do this, you do this. No, no, no. Say, God, I, I, want, I want to invest in people, and I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to build relationships. I'm going to invite people over to my house. I'm going to meet them for lunch, and we're going to build into them naturally, organically, not because you've been programmed to do it. See, friends, that's, that's the church functioning together. Now, friends, it is in that sense that we are all ministers of the Word of God. We're all ministers of prayer, encouragement, counsel, and support. And friends, that is the heart of what 
a church is called to do. It is a commitment to one another to serve one another for the care of their souls. Now, friends, what's being talked about here in this text um, is the importance of community, but it's also the importance of confession. You notice that. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Now, you've heard me say this before. I remember when, when Promise Keepers was happening. This is many years ago, a big kind of men's thing that was going on, kind of event. And, and men were coming back to churches and giving testimonies, and they were confessing things in the context of church that they should never confess in the context of church. And ended up causing trouble in the church. So the point here, confess your sins one to another, we must be very, very careful about it. Someone has said that confession is the vomit of the soul. And it can, if too generally and too indiscriminately made, do more harm than good. So we need to have some wisdom. So another person has said, confession should always be as wide as the sin. So let's just kind of walk through some of those pictures, because I think this is really important for us. We want to be a people who are confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another. Is that right? That's what James says. But wisdom now needs to be applied. So what does it look like? Well, if we have sinned secretly, confess it to God. If you've been jealous, angry, fearful in your heart, you have an attitude of doubt or anxiety with God, take it to him. Now, I would say a little caveat there is that maybe you have someone who is that, that maybe that one person that you meet with regularly who knows the struggle of your heart, and you can say, I'm going to confess this to God, but I want, I want this guy to help me be accountable, so I might talk with him about it, right? But the point is, this is something between you and God. Secondly, if you've sinned against someone else, we should confess it to God and to the person um, whom we have wronged. So if you've lied to a person, go to them. Confess your sin. Restore your relationship. If you treated them with unkindness, go to them. If you stole something from them that was theirs, go to, go to God first, then to them personally confessing your sin. You guys all with me so far? So just imagine there's, there's, there's a net of need to know. Right? If it's in your heart, you and God. If it's with that person, then the net is with you and that person. If we sin publicly, then confess it to God, and then publicly based on the circumstances of that particular sin. So if something sinful was said when you were out with some friends over lunch, well, what do you do? Confess it to God, and you seek out those friends who are at lunch, and you confess it to them. Does that make sense? Right? If you took place in the, in the context of a home group where it was said to the whole home group, then confess it to that group. If you did something inappropriate that, that needs to be expressed to the church, you may need to confess it to the whole body. So there's a wisdom here as to the arenas where confession needs to be made. Does that make sense? Because I've heard in the church people want, you know, in the public sense, hey, give us the dirty, dark stuff, Right? Well, we're not supposed to be doing that. We're not just supposed to be a bleh. But we are supposed to, to build relationships to the point that we can have this kind of confession. And these people can pray. And what this says is that there is a partnership going on. There's not a looking down on one another. There's an encouragement to pursue maturity in Christ. Not to condemn because you've fallen in sin. And friends, the body of Christ certainly isn't perfect, is it? 
And there is going to be some sin on display in many ways among believers. And remember, we have not arrived in our maturity at all. We're all still a work in progress. And there'll be times when we say things, we do things, we believe things, we support things that will not please the Lord or be edifying for the body of Christ. Yet, with humility, confession, and prayer, there can be forgiveness and healing. My friends, just remember this. Our walk with God is a community project. I know here in America, it's all about me, myself, and I. In the church, it's about Christ, it's about the body, and it's about being part of that body. All right, community is important. But we can't just snap our fingers and say, oh, let's be community. Community has to be built, and it takes time and it takes trust, and it takes reinforcement because people have confessed, and they've been treated in a godly fashion to encourage them in their spiritual growth. So that's the prayer of the body, prayer of individuals, the prayer of the elders, the prayer of the body. It's a caring community. Isn't that beautiful when the church is doing that? Then we have the prayer of the righteous. Here we have a scriptural encouragement. Notice We begin at the end of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, we might be thinking to ourselves, even before we came to this text, I'm a pretty average follower of Christ. Certainly my prayers won't be as powerful as the pastor's or one of the elders. And James wants to put that thought to rest. So he front ends, um, sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. And so what he does is he, he brings our attention to a man we know as a prophet of God who had actually experienced some incredible displays of God's power, and that man is Elijah. But notice that James doesn't mention that Elijah was a prophet. Now, I understand. He didn't have to. But I think there's something about that. He front-ends his words about Elijah by saying he was a man with a nature like ours. What he's doing is he's kind of leveling the play field. We are all the same. That's what he's saying. You're a follower of Christ. You are just like Elijah. He wants us to rid ourselves of this super-Christian mentality when it comes to the characters God used in Scripture. He wants us to see that they were ordinary men and women just like us. And when we reflect on Elijah, we need to reflect honestly and truthfully. We need to remember that in his life, there were moments of great courage. What he took on the prophets of Baal. What an incredible display of God's power. And what a way he stood in front of all those prophets. But there were also moments when he panicked and ran for his life. There were moments when Elijah believed that God could do just about anything, and then there were other moments when he is experiencing suicidal depression, saying to God, if you really love me, take my life. 
And the reality is we are often very selective in how we view things. And we need to recognize that these great characters in the Bible are human people just like us. The only one that would be an exception, of course, would be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In the sense, he's like us, but he didn't fail and fall like we do. So James wants us to see three things. I'll highlight it. We've already kind of talked about it. First of all, Elijah was a man just like us. He was a righteous person, someone who was declared righteous and seeking to honor God. Remember earlier, James said, you, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask. You do not you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so part of, I think, the dynamic here is saying, here is a righteous person who's seeking to honor God. He's imperfect. He's a man. But he's, his weather vane is pointed in the right direction. He ultimately does want to honor God. Secondly, Elijah prayed when difficulty came. When difficulty came, he turned to God in prayer. He prayed that the rain would stop, and it did for three and a half years. He prayed again, and the rain came and gave blessing to the earth. He prayed, and he prayed again. And that is what James wants us to see. From his position of weakness, Elijah prayed, and so should we. Third, Elijah prayed fervently with energy. So it wasn't just a ceremony he went through. They weren't just some kind of an incantation or something like that. Um, He's praying from the heart. The prayer of a, of a righteous person has great power in its working. So a righteous person, a person just like Elijah, who is just like us, is that righteous person, has great power in its working. In other words, do you believe? He's not just going through some ritual or ceremony. Secondly, he believes in the power of God, that God can answer his prayer. Do you believe that God can do you believe in the sovereignty of God, that he, that he knows the best answer to his prayer? But he believes that the power is not in his prayer, but is in God. And that's, that's a distinction, friends, that we need to understand. The answer for prayer is not the power of my prayer, but it's the power of God to do what he desires to do according to his will in answer to that request. Again, this is where the Pentecostals and Charismatics mix it up. They think the the power's in the prayer. See, God, I pray this. You have to. No, God doesn't have to do anything. Friends, Elijah was a great example for us. Let me remind you of how James begins this letter, a beginning that sets the stage for the rest of this letter. Look at uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you are entrenched in your trial, and your trial uh, is is testing your faith. What are you going to do? Well, the evidence of your faith, James says here, is that while you are seeking to be steadfast and finding joy in your circumstances, you're turning to God in earnest prayer. It's all part of the package. 
A kind of prayer that sees God as both powerful and sovereign, who hears our prayers, who understands our circumstances, who answers our prayers according to his will. And then our joy and the evidence of our true faith will be our willingness to find comfort in those truths that God knows, he understands, he's powerful, but he's going to exercise his will based on what he knows is best. So friends, prayer is not something we do. Prayer is something we live. That might sound strange, but what I'm trying to convey is that prayer is our intercession with God. It is not a task. I mean, just think about it this way. You husbands, maybe it's like this for you, I don't know. But husbands, you're going to talk to your wife. I've got a task. Box. I need to go talk with my talk to my wife. Cha-ching, got that done, okay. What would your relationship with your wife be like if that's how it was? No, you live with your wife, right? You commune with your wife. You, you fellowship with your wife. You talk to your wife. You interact with your wife. That's how I'm seeing this here. It is communion with God. It is the very spiritual breath you and I are breathing every day. We do it on our knees. We do it on the couch. We do it in, the, in our chair, over the frying pan, in your car, at your station at work, on BART, at Starbucks, before your meal, when you put your head on your pillow at night. You are having an attitude and a heart of communion with God. And friends, hear this. We get to pray. Now, I know some of you in here, especially younger generation, if I said, hey, Steph Curry is just outside around the corner. Pastor, hurry up and finish. We don't want to miss out on this. I'll tell you, God is outside just around the corner. And you get to interact with him every moment of every day. Think of that? I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? That God has broken through with his son and made a way that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. How beautiful is that? So don't let your prayer life become a burden or a bondage for you. It doesn't need to be that way. Pray purposely and regularly and dependently and fervently and submissively, but friends, I beg you, pray! Again, let me remind you of the words of Bunyan. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Those are wise words. Now, as we bring this to a close, I want to challenge this question. Why don't we pray like this? I have five answers, and certainly this is not an exhaustive list. There's probably more I could put on here. But maybe these will help stir your hearts to think through maybe your struggle. First of all, doubt. Worldly wisdom creeps into our thinking, and we question whether it's foolish to pray or not. My coworkers don't pray, and look at their success. Maybe I should just follow their wisdom. I just doubt whether it's actually going to work. And maybe, maybe even that expression I'm using there is the wrong expression. Is, is it prayer that's supposed to work 
Does that mean that my desire, my end is the goal, or is it God's desire and his end is the goal, see? So maybe it's doubt. Maybe it's pride. We feel embarrassed to ask for prayer. Now, friends, I understand sometimes there are things that are going on with us that are of a private nature, but sometimes people tell other people, don't let anyone know about this thing. Don't let the church know what I'm going through. And my response is, why? You're going through a trial. You're going through suffering. You need the church to pray for you. You're removing from your life a wonderful blessing, a wonderful resource that God has given you. We'd rather give the appearance that everything is fine than admit that we have lost the plot and need for others to pray for us. Don't pride. Third, disappointment. What if I have been praying fervently for a long time and nothing seems to be happening? Have I failed? My friends, that's a really good pastoral question. And the answer might be, well, maybe, but that may not necessarily be why the prayer is not being answered the way that you're praying it. It might just be that God doesn't want to answer the prayer according to the way that you're asking. It may not be anything about how you're going around prayer, right? But we can be disappointed. And disappointment can, can lead then to doubt, right? <laughs> so we don't pray. Fourth, and this comes out of our text, independence. We believe wrongly that God wants us to struggle through our own trial. That he expects me now with the tools that I have to face this. Yes, he expects you to use those tools, but he expects you to use those tools while you are resting in him, while you are communing with him. Friends, if, if, if nothing else comes out of the sermon this morning, I just plead with you to fight in your heart against the American mentality of individualism and embrace the beauty of the body of Christ, helping people pursue Christ-likeness. And five, I think the fifth one is this, just a lack of discipline. We don't see prayer as a priority, so we don't make it a point to pray. And of course, we know there's all sorts of different kinds of prayers, right? There's the prayers that happen in, in the heart as you're walking to the grocery store and you're trying to figure out what you need to buy and just the wisdom of what you need to do. And that's, 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 that's communing with God. But then there's the, let me sit down and let me, let me pray purposefully for others and for needs that people are going through, that kind of stuff. And sometimes we just, we let that slide. There's probably other things, but those are some things for us to think through. So why don't we pray like this? Here's five answers. Another question, what can we do in order to start praying? Because that's ultimately where we want to go, isn't it? Number one, it's probably the most profound thing I'll say all day. In order to start praying, pray. I can repeat that if you'd like. You're, you're not going to learn to ride a bicycle until you do what? Get on the bicycle. Start riding. Now, you might fall down. 
You might read all sorts of books, watch videos. YouTube, I'm sure, has lots of videos on how to ride a bike. But it's not until you get on it that you actually learn, all right? And so you have to get up there. You got to, you got to, and it might feel uncomfortable. This might be new to you. It might be something you struggle with, you know, but you got to get over these doubts, over these obstacles and say, all right, I'm, I'm going to pray. I'm going to jump into the deep end of the pool and I'm going to pray. And friends, you don't need a special formula. You don't need to have a special prayer voice. Oh, God. As if, you know, as if somehow God hears you better when you do that. No. See, this is the thing. Prayer is, is the, the privilege and the joy of every believer to come to God and to, to, to praise him, to confess sins, and to commune with him. We don't do that formally. I mean, certainly there can be some formality about it when you consider who we're praying to. But there's a genuineness, there's an openness about that. So just talk to God about the things you're facing and ask him for help. It's a place to begin. Secondly, meditate on the scriptures. And as you meditate on the scriptures, allow what God is revealing to you in those scriptures to be the basis of your prayer. Right? So if we, you know, you come to church and we go through a passage, use that. As you open maybe your own personal devotions, assuming that's a habit that you have, read God's Word, allow what God is teaching you, use that as a source of, of prayer to say, God, what you're revealing here is what I want to be. Lord, help me to do what it is you're calling me to do. That's prayer. But it's coming from the Scriptures, and you're interacting with the Scriptures, and that's going to direct how you go. Right? Third, Pray with others. Now, I've been in different churches, and I've been in different places, and been in different kind of contexts of prayer. Now, you probably can relate to this. When I was a, a young guy um, training for ministry, I was serving at a church that was um, a really small kind of country church in North Carolina. And uh, it was my first, I think, couple of Sundays there. And we went into the room to pray. And the room to pray was basically a, a, a shed they had put together, right? Because the church met in a single wide trailer. So we're in this thing. And I'm like, all right, what are the prayer requests? We went through a prayer request. All right, let's pray. And everyone started praying out loud at the same time. And I was like, uh, this is different, right? It was just strange. That's culture. It's not unscriptural. I'm just saying, this culture is different. I do think, though, when you when you sit down and you're on your knees, you're gathered with people and you hear other people pray that you learn what drives their prayer and what's important in their prayer. And you learn how to pray. So one of the things you can do if you want to grow in this area is seek out another mature person that you think, you know, this person might be a help to me. And just say, would you, would you pray with me? And you can offer your simplified prayer that you're not sure about. And you can allow them to model what prayer can look like. It's a beautiful thing. The last one is this, read about prayer. I mean, read it from the Word of God. But there are some good books that are out there about prayer. But in other words, be a student of prayer. Grow in your prayer. And friends, this will be a discipline that will be rich. Now, friends, if we can go into 2020 with with the right eyesight, right? Of course, every pastor is using 2020 this Sunday, right? As they're going into 
next year. You have to, if you're a pastor, take advantage of that. And one of the ways that we do that is to see clearly through prayer. Now, I just want to challenge you to consider your own walk with God and the place of prayer in that walk and what God is calling us to be individually, as elders, and as a church to carry out this responsibility of the prayer of prayer that God has given us, the great privilege of prayer. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are a great and awesome God who loves us enough to reveal yourself in the pages of your word so that we can understand who you are and what you have done and how we are to live for your glory. And Lord, as we've come to the book of James, you have been rightly hammering us with all sorts of different areas and issues, driving us to want to to, to be mature in how we carry out those responsibilities. But Lord, you want us to, to pursue this trial and these struggles and the life that we are living bathed in a communion with you, whether that is coming before you boldly, uh, Lord, to that throne in prayer, or coming boldly in praise, Lord. We praise you, Lord, for the privilege of doing that. Help us, Lord, to take advantage of it and to allow prayer to be that powerful resource that you've given us that is alive and active in our lives here at Gateway Bible Church. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.